I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. All right then, Pop Craze Youngson, it is now finally time to go way back to August of 1979. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Hi, it's Thursday, we've got the music if you've got the time. Here's Top of the Pops, the charts and the doodies! The 801st episode of Top of the Pops starts without fanfare, ceremony or even a theme tune. As we see a cutout of a palm tree and your host, dressed in a fawn suit with short sleeves, a yellow shirt and brown and gold tie, standing neath it, if you will. Why, it's Peter Powell. We've already covered Peter Powell in chart music number four, and this week he's filling in for Simon Bates, while Pig Wanker General himself handles <laughs> the Radio One Roadshow with the same authority and sense of purpose as he would handle a boar's cock. <laughs> and today he's at the Green in Hunstanton. Peter Powell is also holding down his Saturday morning 10 to 1 slot, but will soon make way for Tony Blackburn next month and take over the Saturday early evening slot from Chris Jones and will bounce around the weekday schedule as a fill-in before taking over the post-school slot from Andy Peebles in July of 1980. I, I just can't imagine Peter Powell, the most relentlessly optimistic man on the Radio 1 roster, doing our tune. Can you? No. <laughs> <laughs> nah, wouldn't say him. He'd be way too chirpy. Oh, yeah, the day before the wedding, Tony was involved in a sensational car crash. Wow! <laughs> really exciting. <laughs> but that kind of enthusiasm does kind of make him quite a good presenter atop the pops, I yes. think. Mm. Yes, yes. You know. And in the meantime, he's wetting his beak on weeknights by doing DJ sets across the country like most DJs do on Radio 1. But while Kid Jensen is doing promo nights for Nescafe, Powell has made his own beverage-related move as the following advert I found in a Glasgow newspaper bears out. <laughs> Tiffin is Glasgow, tonight! Sounds alive with T and Peter Powell. Have a ball with Peter, visit his tea bar, and win yourself a free T-shirt, tea mug, (laughs) or badgers. Peter Powell laying tea on the kids. Got to ask, Neil, would you drink a cup of tea that was made by Peter Powell? Yeah, I think I would. He looks clean. He looks well-groomed-ish. I don't think any stray Mm. hairs would fall into it. I don't think he'd... If he was doing it in a pot, he wouldn't warm the pot first. 
Um, he wouldn't mash the bag mm. sufficiently, but I'd, I'd take a cup of tea from Peter Powell. Yeah. Um, uh, at, yeah. At a disco, maybe not. That'd be strange. But yeah, he, that's the thing, isn't but it? A morning cup of tea, definitely with Peter Powell, but the thought of him uh, in my kitchen in a Terry Tiling dressing gown is unpleasant enough. So, no, at a disco, mm. it's a strange combination, that yeah. is, isn't it? Kid Jensen, Nescafe, coffee is an upper, tea isn't. Yes. So, um, what that's doing in a nightclub, I don't know. I can't, I can't imagine wanting to spend any time in Peter Powell's tea bar. I think would be too enthusiastic at that time of the day. You know, it'd be banging on about how great the, the cakes are. Simon? Any thoughts? The most um, the most famous person who's ever made me a cup of tea was John Taylor of Duran Duran. So, Good fucking yeah. lord! So really, uh, nothing can really compete with that. I guess I'd say yes. Like Neil says, he seems quite clear. I should say I have had tea bags off a of pop star. Um, yeah, Saucy Osborne. Yes, as mentioned in the Q and A. But tell the general public. Neil, this is a good one. Well, yeah, um, I, I was uh, interviewing Rob Zombie and Ozzy Osbourne in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and uh, mm. was in his dressing room uh, waiting to do the interview and just goggling at his rider, which was fucking immense. And Ozzy comes in mm. very, very wobbly. Um, uh, he obviously hadn't taken his meds or something. Sharon comes <laughs> in. Um, Sharon looked lovely. She comes in. She notices that I'm wearing a suit and, and she goes... Oh, you look nice. And then she gives me a kiss, right? It lingered a little little uh, bit too long. A little oh, bit too long, I, I thought. Um, but anyway, I'm interviewing Ozzy. Campus grass. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm interviewing... Was it a bit Devon Deirdre? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a moment. There was definitely a little frizz on of electricity there. But no, right. anyway, anyway, this was before the, Aussie Osborne, the, the Osborne show had really happened. But the kids were there. They were really young. They, they all trooped out. Interviewed Ozzy, who, as ever with old pros, was just a sweetheart and good. And he got on with it. But uh, I did have to ask him because I'd been in the States for about a week by that point, And I'd, I'd been interviewing various other bands. And um, I, I, I'd said to him, Ozzy, look, I've not had a fucking good cup of tea in, in a week. And it's killing me. And he was like, help yourself. And he gave me a box of Yorkshire gold tea bags. And a normal box Ooh. of Yorkshire tea bags as well. So God bless him. Ooh. By the way, Good. the best song, speaking of um, recent things that have happened, and Ginger Baker passed on the other week. Um, Ginger yes. Baker was responsible for the best song about how Americans can't make a decent cup of tea. It's called T-U-S-A, and it's on the Masters of Reality album called Sunrise on the Suffer Bus. So any um, any wow. UK people in America feeling aggrieved that they can't find a decent cuppa, listen to that song. Beautiful. Thank you. You mentioned his sleeves rolled up. That's key, isn't it? And and is it? Yeah, this is the thing, though. Are the sleeves rolled up, or are they just naturally short, like a safari suit thing? I err on the side of it being a choice that he made to communicate yeah. something. Ooh. And what he's yeah. communicating, you know, with his sleeves rolled up and his Leonesque mane and his unpleasant use of the phrase, we've got the music if you've got the time. Yeah. It's got that mild <laughs> come-on vibe to it. He, his, he is always that teacher who straddles a chair. He's that yes. he's that slightly cool English teacher who who at this time was starting to replace the kind of army bred sadists and pederasts who made up the rest of our teaching staff. Um, we got the odd teacher like this, the kind of teacher that some girls and boys develop crushes on, um, but who actually. They kind of kneel on your desk in overly intimate ways and idly mm. toy with the zipper of their tracksuit when watching you swim lengths. They're not dodgy. <laughs> they're not dodgy, but they're doing a really good, damn good impression of someone who is. Um, I mean, I, put it this way. I remember a mate telling me once that he got up one Saturday morning and went downstairs to the kitchen and our economics teacher was in there 
in a terry toweling dressing gown that belonged to his dad, sat drinking coffee and reading the papers. Who'd clearly copped off with his mum the night before. The middle class. Oh, oh. I mean, that said, this was a mate who, in his hallway, he had photos of you know, like family shots, framed family shots of his mm. family, all naked, wrapped up in a fucking. No, oh, no. The middle classes, man. They're fucking disgraceful. Yeah. I live right by Brighton Nudist Beach. And uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not going to call them sick perverts or anything, each to their own. But <laughs> it, it is just sometimes you, you're walking along the sort of upper promenade bit, just enjoying a view out to sea. And then you glance mm. down and you see some like 60 year old bloke with his ass waggling about. And it's just the last <laughs> thing you want. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I, I'd totally forgotten about this. But is this the summer? The the BBC did that documentary about nudists. Do you remember that? Ah, uh, vaguely. Mm. Oh man, I remember watching that with me nonna and grandpa, and I was in my usual spot of um, laying on the on the rug, um, <laughs> with, with my uh, you know with my elbows propped up, and yeah. they're they're tutting away, but not changing the channel, and I'm there just absolutely fighting not to piss myself laughing. I <laughs> tears. Tears of glee just coming down my face. Particularly, there was one where they're in a supermarket, and the, this fat nudist couple are, are, are like bending over with a basket and and looking at carrots and stuff like that. And it's it's just like, oh my god, please come, can we just have a, a, an emergency reconvene of school tomorrow just for the playground conversation? So when you were lying there, there wasn't a sort of uh, inverted pants tent. There wasn't like um, little Al, oh, no. little Al becoming great big Al at that point. No, 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 not all. It was just this was at the time when sex was still hilarious. Yeah, yeah. You know the slightest thing about sex, you just piss yourself. But I mean, I could not watch that in the same room as my parents. No, no, no absolutely Jesus. not. No, no, no way. I'd, I'd just been dying inside. Oh, no, I, I was just laughing, man. It My mum just... would have been laughing, but she would have been uh, taking the piss out of me, doing the old, woo, do you fancy her? Because she's got to some <laughs> fat German bloke playing volleyball. <laughs> it's always the way, isn't it? People, who, people. I mean, like, far be it from any of us to body shame anybody, but, I mean, it's always the people who perhaps should have a little shame about their yes. bodies who feel absolutely flagrant in displaying yeah. them. Yeah. When they do the documentaries about nudist camp, it's never it's never carry-on film nudist camp standard, no, is it? No, no, <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, uh, Peter Powell, you know, proudly displaying a bit of wrist and forearm on this uh, episode. And I, I can imagine a young Anthea Turner cooing over him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And yeah, I think the um, the school teacher comparison really does work because his tie—I thought it, it was a school tie. Yeah. It's just—it's saying, yeah. So "Yeah, I'm young. I'm just—I'm just one of you young guys." Yeah, I'm one of you young guys, but I'm having it off with women. Yeah, that's the—that's the implication that was always there with that sort of teacher, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. It's amazing yeah, how much yeah. kind of uh, symbolism you can get just from the sh- just from a bit of wrist forty years ago. You know, mm. <laughs> on TV, that we've got all this from it. Some of my finest memories are from a bit of rest several years ago. So, So, yeah, Peter Powell, and it is Thursday night beneath the plastic palm trees. Yeah. Powell tells us that he's got the music if we've got the time and immediately shoves our faces into the glorious carousel of the top 30 as the first music of the night plays. It's wanted by the doolies. 
We've already covered the Doolies in chart music number 36. And this, the fifth top 40 hit, is the follow-up to Honey, I'm Lost, which got to number 24 in March of this year. It's the opening cut on their latest and first album, The Best of the Doolies. Fucking hell, start as you mean to go on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is currently at number 16 in the album charts, and it's gone up this week from number five to number three. Number three. Wow, yeah. Yeah, Simon, your, your yeah. case, the case you're laying out's been um, <laughs> a bit spoiled here, I yeah, think. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Um, I mean, But it's nice way, that getting this shit out of the way early. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And we're not seeing the fucking Dooley family being cunts. Well, I'm surprised we're mm. not, right, because... Um, they always seem to be um, in reception, as the saying goes. Mm. You know, them, along with probably um, Depeche Mode and also um, a certain punk band who we're going to come to later on, just always seem mm. to be in reception at Top of the Pops. They always appeared to me like the, the, the kind of extras you'd see in a lager advert of the time. Yeah, yeah. Where every, everyone's having fun, but it's not gone too far. They'd be, yeah, um, you know, um, staying sharp to the bottom of the glass with a pint of yes. heart or maybe yes. surrounding the Hofmeister bear, doing a little sort of conga. Yes. Um, a fair play to um, Peter Powell, actually, for pumping the doolies with, you know, way more yeah. enthusiasm than, than they yeah. strictly merit. He deserves some kind of medal for that. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, they're a bit crap and they're total mum disco, sort of second rate Nolans, pop music mm. for cruise mm. ships and holiday camps and all that. But it, yes. it's not worth hating them. It's just not. Because they they never got in oh, your well, way. Yeah. We had we had a good go in the last one. <laughs> well, yeah, but <laughs> I think the decline of Britain was pretty much pinned on the Doolies in that episode. <laughs> well, all right, well we've done that now. <laughs> well played, Taylor and David. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they had a few hits and then they just fucked off, didn't they? Um, I mean, this episode of Top of the Pops, as we've hinted, turns out to be so great that it doesn't matter um, no. if it kicks off with a bit of Doolies. You can't you can't begrudge them that little bit of exposure. This is this is pretty much the cod liver oil. Yeah, that you've got to have before before the, the yeah. buffet. <laughs> yeah, if, th- if this if this had happened later and they were actually yeah. there, that would have been a really annoying sort of dead spot yes. in the show. But it's a really canny choice yes. to play this track over the rundown uh, because I think we frequently see that decision made this year in, to- in Top of the Pops to put a kind of dull record on, often a disco yeah. one, to accompany the rundown yes. so as not to really distract yeah, the viewer right, yeah. from the yeah. chart. I mean, when you look at this chart, imagine this chart with, like, Death Disco <laughs> over it. it. It wouldn't work. It would be too distracting. It'd be awesome, but it, but it wouldn't yeah. quite work. So you, ne- you need something a little yeah. bit dull like this this Brisco record. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the getting your coats off uh, section of the party, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Getting your first pint in, yeah. The startling thing is that the person who co-wrote this, I mean, it, it's, he's also responsible for Billy Ocean's Love Really Hurts Without You, which I, I love that record. Yeah. How can you write something that astonishing and then make yeah. this? It's just odd. But, but it's perfect as kind of, yeah, basically a kind of theme music in a sense that you're ignoring. Whilst but you know exactly how somebody down. like that could write this kind of song because they're not artists, they're pros, they're professional songwriters. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, this, yeah. I mean yeah, it's yeah. a classic kind of Hispanic chord descent, isn't it? Um, the melody of it, mm. as also mm. heard in I Will Survive um, and uh, Love to Hate You by Erasure and millions of other things. And I think it works because we, we've all heard these chords played by flamenco guitarists in hotel courtyards, you know, so it, <laughs> it, it feels like you already know the song. And, and obviously mm. it worked, as, as you say, number three, their biggest hit, um, as we yes. find out during the countdown, number one in Japan. And um, yeah. I, I love that apparently, right, they were big in the USSR at the height of the Cold War yes. and they recorded a live album in Moscow. I mean, I've never been to Russia, right? 
But I love yeah. the idea that if I went there and I told someone I was a British music journalist, you know, that they might not say, ah, Beatles. They might, they might say, yeah. ah, Dooleys. You know, yeah. <laughs> that'd be amazing. <laughs> you know, you know first, those, um... first Western band to play uh, Russia. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. They're practically the equivalents of the, the, the pandas that China sent to us. Ah, oh, it's a fair swap. <laughs> They're our cultural dowry. We're probably still seeing the repercussions of that, of that unbalanced yes. trade deal now. Yes. Yes, um, <laughs> but you know, you know those. Um, yeah, they're, 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 they're musical novichok, aren't they? <laughs> you know those. Uh, they're called Rundgenizdat records. They were um, they were apparently uh, circulated in the Soviet Union. They were bootleg discs made from X-ray plates. Yes, that that thing. Um, mm. Apparently, loads of them were by the Beatles, and and yeah. I'd, I'd love to own one, even though I'm not a Beatles fan, because they're just. Just a really desirable item, I think. You know, just a record with somebody's femur and tibia on it, and um, and I'm I'm a bit of a Soviet <laughs> fetishist, you know. Um, you know, not hiding oh, that. God, the ultimate, the ultimate Beatles souvenir would be of one of those a, a Beatles single printed on an X-ray scan of of John Lennon after he got shot. Fucking hell. <laughs> Can you imagine how much that would go for? Well, if Jonathan King couldn't get his Yorkshire Ripper record off the ground. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, indeed. But you know what? If, if I got my hands on one of those uh, and I put the needle on expecting the Beatles and Wanted by the Dooleys came out instead, that would make my life. That would really appeal yes. to me. It's funny, though, the, the kind of Soviet fetishism that you're talking about, I engaged in quite a bit of that in my youth as well. But now, obviously, Russia is yeah. the last per- place on earth I want to go to. Um you know, yeah, but yeah, I was yeah, very yeah. much CCCP on my on my pencil case, and yeah, I, I was actually secretly pleased. I, I was I had a holiday lined up there that fell through because they're absolute cunts with the visas, right. and um, oh. and and then uh, when Wales failed to qualify for the World Cup there, I was kind of secretly pleased as well because I thought, you know, do I really want to go there? It just sounds a fucking. It does. Apparently, it was great yeah, once yeah. you were there, but yeah, yeah, I've had mates who've been to Russia and they say it's fucking brilliant. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, one of my dark mates went. And he oh, really? Ah. Yeah. ah, that might be a clincher for me. But just doolies everywhere you go, presumably, you know, just blasting <laughs> yeah. out the radio to this day. <laughs> so this is the um, this is the spoiler-tastic version of the countdown, isn't it? Where they they mm. they give you the whole thing uh, rather yes, than rather right than um, yeah rather than stopping off at certain points to play a song. But I, I think that's because the assumption was that anybody who was into Top of the Pops knew what the charts were anyway. I suppose so. You know, because so, yeah. it had been revealed two days before. Yeah, but Al, this is 79. I mean, the last time I saw that rundown, you know, going all the way through to number one, was in the episode I did in 1970. They didn't think of changing that in nine years. It's no. mad, isn't it? It's absolutely no. mad. No. Yeah. That, the, the introduction of, yeah, the, the rundown later is such a vital move later on in yes. Top of the Pops history. Smart it changes move, yeah. the, it's a smart move. Totally changes the feel of the show. Yeah. And of course, with the chart rundown, we get another choice selection of chart picks, don't we? <laughs> yes. We have the Gibson brothers standing in front of Hilda Ogden's Muriel. <laughs> a photo of Public Image Limited that shares off the heads of half the band and has a rainbow tint as if it's been left on a window ledge all year. And uh, Amy Stewart in her hoopy head joy and a oh, starkled ex- yeah. but with a starkled expression, making her look like a deer trapped in headlights. <laughs> yeah. Anything on there you didn't recognise? I was thrown by yeah. Tom Pace. Yeah, yeah, that's the one for me as well. Yeah, Thom, Thom Pace. Oh, uh, Thom, I, yeah, Thom, yeah, yeah, like like Thom York. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I'd never heard of him either. I looked him up, and uh, yeah. so he's this American singer songwriter. Yes, and and uh, his song was called Maybe, and it was a theme from Grizzly Adams. Yes, now, I I, ah. I don't really know. I I don't know what or who 
Grizzly Adams was, but Wikipedia tells me it's like based on a true story about Don't a man. Grizzly Adams? No, no, oh, I, I didn't watch it. Wrongly accused of murder, goes uh, to live in the woods and becomes a sort of animal whisperer. Yeah, yes. So, uh, so I, in, in modern day parlours, was was he a prepper? Was he a survivalist? You know. <laughs> so I, I, yeah. I, I don't trust Grizzly Adams politically. I'm, I'm mm. guessing he's like NRA. And uh, the federal government will take his shotgun from his cold, dead hands. <laughs> but um, um, Thom Pace, though, is the opposite from what I can glean from Twitter. He's got um, 266 followers, yeah. and uh, most of his activity involves retweeting Scott Dworkin and other anti-Trump content. So oh, he's, prob- good he's, he's probably all right. He's, yeah, okay, he's Pace. needs more followers. Yeah, yeah, follow Thom Pace. Yeah, go on, Pop Crazy Youngsters. Chuck him a follow. Uh, I tell you some photos that jumped out at me. There's a, a picture of um, toothy Judy Tsuk. And uh, yes. she's, she's pictured with four blokes, also mostly toothy. Mm. And I, I wonder if that was a sort of criterion for joining her band. You had to be able to eat <laughs> yeah. an apple through a tennis racket. <laughs> but honestly, looking at the chart rundown in the late 70s, it's like getting your fucking holiday photos back from True Print and realising just how shit your camera is. <laughs> yeah, it's not exactly uh, Annie Leibovitz, is no, it? The quality no. of photos here. All that's missing is a fucking giant thumb over Judy Zook's face, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Mick Rock is spinning in his grave, even though he's still mm. alive. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, but you, I, I think you get an interesting snapshot, uh, pun intended, of of the moment that punk splits into post punk here, yes. right? Because because yeah. Pill and the Pistols are both in there, and um, the Pill photo has got Jar Wobble front and center, mm. and um, and John Lydon's half out of shot, and and. Yeah. In itself, that's symbolic because Lydon yes. was sort of retreating from being a public face. Yeah. You know? And then in the Pistols photo, he's absent entirely, which is mm. correct because yeah, yeah. The, the single was Come On Everybody, which he, yes. he isn't on, obviously. Um, another one that jumped out at me, the Beach Boys looking very weather-beaten. They had a hard paper. Oh, They yes. had a hard paper round in the 70s. My God. Um, yes. But yeah, as well as the sort of... On surfboards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe they spent a little bit too much time in the great outdoors. Um, but yeah, as well as the, the post-punk... Thing just becoming evident. We're also at the high point of disco, I think, in mm. the summer of 79. Yes. There's yes, a few I examples so. in this countdown. So there's Donna Summer and Sheik are both in there. And you mentioned uh, Amy Stewart wearing her mad headdress. But yeah, it's also the high mm. point of New Wave. So you've got the Ruts, the Police, Tubeway Army, and some of the bands that we're going to talk about in the show. So th- this, just looking at that rundown, um, even without the songs that we're going to actually talk about, does show you why it was such a great year because you've got those two movements sort of new wave slash punk and disco um at their very peak yeah yeah and rather enchantingly the one i like the most is probably ricky lee jones oh yeah just having a fag you know (laughs) yeah well that's a great single chucky's in love i mean Mm. that's the thing some of these singles in here Mm. are all-time greats so you've got good times by chic Silly Games by Janet Kay, yeah, which yeah, in, in connection with... Is the, what you could have won. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and My Sharona by the Knack. So, you know, you, you could have made a whole alternate episode of songs that didn't get shown this week would be just as good. Um, there are, to be fair, also a few singles should be taken outside and shot. And I'm talking about <laughs> ELO, The Diary of Horace Wimp. And you know, you know how much of an ELO fan yeah, I yeah. am, but Jesus Christ, yeah. that song. <laughs> really? Horace Wimp. Oh, God alive, it's just the worst. Oh, I think I prefer it to Mr. Blue Sky, you know. <laughs> oh, get out. <laughs> you're wrong, and you're a grotesquely ugly freak. <laughs> so the following week, Wanta dropped back two places to number five, and the follow-up, The Chosen Few, got to number ten for two weeks in October. 
But as we've mentioned in a previous episode, Want had spent ten fucking weeks at number one in Japan. Wow. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We immediately get stuck into the first act, Urshan Boys by Sham69. We've already covered Sham in chart music number four, and to all intents and purposes, they are a band in crisis. They started 1979 with a calamitous tour of the UK, where they sealed their reputation as the country's biggest meathead magnets, which peaked in a riot at Middlesex Pole and ended in Aylesbury on the last day of January, with Jimmy Percy announcing on stage that the band had played their last ever gig. They also found out round about this time that The Who had turned down the two songs they recorded for the Quadrophenia soundtrack because they weren't 60s enough. In April, BBC Two broadcast an episode of their arts documentary series Arena while the band were recording their third and seemingly final LP, The Adventures of the Urshan Boys, as Percy had announced that he was splitting the band up and joining forces with Steve Jones and Paul Cook to form a punk supergroup which was being called The Sex Pistols, The New Pistols, Pistol 69 and The Sham Pistols, depending on which music paper you read that week. After playing a successful comeback gig at the Glasgow Apollo in early July, they were tempted into playing another gig at the Rainbow, which ended in chaos. Meanwhile, this is the follow-up to Questions and Answers, which got to number 18 in April of this year, and it's the lead cut from the new LP, and it's the highest new entry this week, 
at number 23. Oh, there's a there's a lot to unpack here, isn't there, chaps? There is. Um, there is. I mean, as was hinted in, in, in mm. the NME letters stuff that you read out earlier, um, we're really in an era where a lot of people are sort of asking, you know, yeah. what what is punk rock? And is it still going? And is it over? Is, you know, those kind of questions. And, and really, Sham 69 always came across to me as for the kids sort of too young to have been there for the Pistols, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. But but who also felt that the bands that came in the Pistols' wake were kind of mainly just shit copyists. And, and, and also, it's the fact that he cares. That's the thing about Jimmy Percy. Yes. It's the fact... The Pistols, you never got the feeling, really, that they cared about their fans, in a sense. They, they were just mm. going to be this explosion that happened. The Pistols obviously could never write a song that was so gauche and unironic or simple in its stance as, as the yeah. kids are united. Sam 69 care about the kids that they're singing about, or at least you've always got a sense that Jimmy did, definitely. But in yeah. 79, like I've mentioned, I'm seeing skins and punks with Sham 69 on their jackets, and they tend yes. to be the scary right-wing ones. Um, yes. Jimmy's sort of tactic of all these meatheads turning up and him almost conducting debates with them to try and turn them around. <laughs> I'm yeah. not entirely convinced, but, you know... So many farewell gigs, it's virtually every gig they do that year seems to be a farewell yeah. gig in a sense. I read a brilliant Chris Needs review of their supposed last gig in Aylesbury, um, which is a treat just for the bit where he reports that Percy, when he's uh, about to go into the Kids of United, um, shouts at the crowd, you know, they slagged us off with this song, but they don't know it came from here, in here, <laughs> and sort of punches yeah. his heart. And that's simultaneously kind of what's... Um, a bit grisly about Percy, but also what's really likeable about him. It, yes. it, it's kind of like what Pricey was saying, oddly enough, about Mick Jagger. Um, last episode we did together, a likeable twat as a frontman. Do you know what I mean? Mm. That that that's mm. sort of the way I see Jimmy. The prime example. Well, yeah, and he's one of those figures who kind of he sets himself up as kind of not giving a fuck, but really, really he does give a fuck, and he's clearly yes. feels injured by every word that that's said about him. Because in 78, there's a very much a, a piss-takey tone in, in a lot of the coverage of Jimmy Percy in, in yes. Sham 69. And sometimes you do get, as a music journalist, you get these sanctimonious front men to a certain extent, who it's it's kind of fun to take the piss out of them, just mm. because you know that their bottom lip's going to wobble and they're going to react really badly. <laughs> um, later on, this would be like Eddie Vedder or Billy Corgan or somebody like that, or, or, or the band Smash, perhaps. But... Um, you know, Sham 69 for me were always a bit too close to Gary Bushell's heart for me to ever really kind of be affectionate about them. And I'm also mm. dubious when a band gets props for... Be- I mean, the Gary Bushell review of the album that this single comes from is, is unbelievable because it kind of starts with, finally, Sham 69 are going to be written about if somebody understands them and gets them. Um, mm. You know, in the same month that Gary Bushell's kind of writing a review of the uh, second magazine album that, that just pulls it apart for its its puffiness, if you like. Um, mm. So it's a, it's a bit too oi for me. And I'm always yeah. dubious when a band gets props for being for being working class, ultimately, because it's, it's usually a reductive notion of class and what what different classes yeah. can do. But yeah, yeah um, Jimmy Percy this year is saying we're not a new wave band, we're not a power pop band, we're a punk band. Mm. And if this is where punk has ended up, I guess its time its time is up. Its time is limited. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the crucial thing about Jimmy Percy and Sam 69 is that unlike most of the first generation of punk rockers, perhaps accepting The Clash, they cared, man. They cared about yeah. their fans. They cared about the kids. And that's simultaneously what's sort of slightly appealing about his daftness, mm. but also sort of puts me off a little bit as well. The night before... 
Cella uh, Black had formed a punk band with Frankie Howard on a on a television <laughs> show. So you know, it's safe to say that punk has officially been defanged. But also, I contend that this is the moment where punk is at its absolute peak. I mean, it was around my way. Uh, by this time, yeah. I'd started going to uh, the discos at Top Valley Youth Club and also at the community centre. And that's the first time I ran into actual punks who, you know, mm. some of whom were as old as 15. And yeah. uh, they, they scared the shit out of me. Yeah. Simply because when you're 11 years old, any 15-year-old's going to scare the shit out of you anyway. But yeah, there was a there was a lot of bin liners. There was a lot of kicking about. You know that you know that dance that punks were doing at the time which was basically kicking the legs up in the air while swinging their arms around. And uh yeah, used to scare the shit out of me. But Sham 69 were were huge. There was a gang of youths round about this time, and every night they would go from one end of the estate to the other, walking up and down the streets, just shouting, Sham 69! <laughs> over and over again. And you could hear them from streets away while you were laying yeah. in bed and uh, just, just absolutely terrified that bricks were going to come through the window and that. Mm. And they loved this song because of the opening guitar stabs, because you could kick someone while you were doing it you know mm, mm. but also sham 69 were um they've become the kind of like the lad band at my school they've taken over from show waddy waddy mm. i remember a group of my mates we got i think we got smash hits and we're all in the playground um it might be before smash it might have been disco 45 but we've all got our arms around each other just marching up and down the playground singing uh, we're going down the pub because the idea of going down to a pub was a very, you know, oh, that's what we wanted to do, be mm. like our dads. I think this was around the time that Martins, the news agents, were selling little key rings in the shape of cans of Guinness and stuff like that. <laughs> so, yeah, we were, we were very alcoholically minded without actually having had any booze, <laughs> apart deck. from at Christmas. Yeah, top deck, yeah. It was the top deck years. <laughs> Simon, in you come. Uh, first of all, I want to apologise to pop-crazed youngsters for any cat-meowing noises you can hear in the no, background. No, no, it's good. Yeah, yeah, that's Bowie. <laughs> um, she is very vocal, and um, I thought about locking her in the other room, but she'll just shit. No. She'll shit and piss everywhere, and it's just no good. Um, yeah. yeah, so um, I, I really feel for Jimmy Percy, because I just recently I, I watched that... Um, the documentary on the story of Skinhead, uh, the Don Letts one, mm. yeah. uh, that's back on the iPlayer. And uh, there's quite a lot of stuff there about what happened with Sham 69. And um, Jimmy Percy's not racist. They, they weren't a racist band. They re- really anti that. Mm. And they, they played the Rock Against Racism concert to make that point. Um, yeah. But and, and it was precisely because they played the Rock Against Racism concert that um, their gigs, the particular gig, you know, that was the sort of final one, was was invaded by by a gang of sea hiling skinheads because mm. they they just wanted they, they they resented sham coming out as anti-racist and um uh, according to percy there are only about sort of 25 of them but they managed to sort of get the rest of the crowd going as well and it just turned into some, some sort of hate mob in this week's nme i've got the report right on that. May, may i yeah go Sham 69's farewell show at London's Rainbow Theatre on Saturday was halted after just five songs when a riot broke out. John Hamblett gives his view of the affray. The dimly lit Rainbow Theatre is almost full of people, many of whom could be loosely described as skinheads. But there are skinheads and there are skinheads. And the difference between the two is sharp and well-defined. Skinheads are revivalists, 
Their main concern is with fashion and appearing to be affiliated to a hardline youth movement. Skinheads are brutal. They appear to be political extremists aligning themselves with the National Front of the British movement, although it has been suggested that if wearing Tufty Club badges were as antagonising, they'd be happy to do that too. Most people here, whether skinheads, mods or loosely interested parties of no strict denomination, have come to witness and be part of Sham 69's farewell concert. The skinheads have double-booked the hall. They are here to stage an alternative happening. And, you know, you can guess the rest. Mm. I mean, basically, they really fucked Jimmy Percy over, didn't they, the cunts? Yeah. Sham 69 could have been a, a, a huge band. They fucked Sham 69 over. They also fucked the skinhead movement over. Yeah. Because yeah. one thing that comes out of that Donnett's documentary is that it started off as very much um, a thing of like working class white and black British people celebrating Jamaican music and Jamaican culture. And, and it was all about that um, uh, up until probably in the sort of early to mid 70s. Uh, you start to get this sort of second wave that were more associated with football hooliganism and that kind of stuff. Mm. And by the time you get to 79, it's almost, uh, you know, as as the uh, NME writer there says, it's it's a revival. And, and this sort of new breed, 10 years later, of skinheads don't know anything about that. They don't know about the origins or they don't care. You know, it's mm. just yeah. an yeah, excuse yeah. for a ruck. So, you know, yeah, yeah, they. it was just a hugely destructive thing. And, you know, this this is why I, I, I really support... Um, that movement sharp skinheads against racial prejudice. Mm. I often walk around in their t-shirt and stuff like that because I, I, I think it ought to be reclaimed. You know, some people may say you just can't reclaim it, but I, I, I really believe in the anti-racist skinhead. Yeah, but I mean, those documentaries, they do gloss over things a little bit because every time I've seen a, a late 60s, early 70s, you know, news report or documentary about skinheads and they're all in the youth club and there's, you know, there's a, a mix of black and white kids and, and and they always say, oh, yeah, you know, we get on, we get on with the black kids, we just hate the Pakistanis. And it's like, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that yeah. hand immediately goes to the chin. It's like, it's not that clear cut. There, there's lots of great things about early skinhead culture, but but one of the things that I pervasively see and experienced at the time was that there was plenty of solidarity between white and black kids, and an awful lot of that solidarity happens to be in hating packies, as they right. used to call us. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So we were, we were always underdogs in that regard, without a pop presence, without a pop style, without our own music in the mm. charts. You know what I mean? So so we were always the Auslanders of that party. Yeah. Um, so consequently, yeah, as skinhead culture gets more far right, and, and it's interesting also that you mentioned the British movement, the British movement, because everyone knows remembers the NF, but people don't tend to remember the British movement. The British movement was kind of almost like a, it was like the Combat 18 of its day almost. It was it was the harder form of the NF. Um, so for a young Asian kid, I'm just, I, I've said it already, but for a young Asian kid in '79, you don't make those distinctions. You can't make a distinction between a good skinhead and a non-good skinhead. To you that all want to kick your head in mm. um, and, and that was the pervasive thing you know if I see Sham 69 on so many jackets of these scary looking fuckers mm. it takes something for me even now because that fear is so residual and deep mm. to, to, to listen to them do you know what I mean and, and appreciate them um, and the fact that their boosters are people like Gary Bushell doesn't no. help but you know that's not Sham 69's fault but it has consequently tainted them for me mm. you know ever yeah, since yeah I understand that 
Yeah. It's weird that Sham got saddled with Skin anyway, because mm. they were um, ostensibly a punk band. Yeah. But I suppose it's because they had that kind of bother boy sound, like Slade. They're like kind of like the Slade of punk. Mm. I'm, I'm not putting them in the same quality bracket as Slade, yeah. but that same kind of stomping terrace anthem thing. Yeah, yeah. well, the story goes that um, Jimmy Percy was, was you know, the, there was a Sham 69 gig, and, and from the stage, Jimmy Percy could see one of his old mates, and he'd, he'd shaved his head or something like that. And he just said, oh, you know, oh, oh, I see skinheads are back then, you know, taking the piss out of his mate. Right. And apparently he got reported in the paper that Jimmy Percy grabbed the mic and went, skinheads are back! Ah, oh, for fuck's sake. Right, so, right. yeah. I'm wondering whether Hersham Boys is the first punk record I ever bought. Right. It was either this or, or something maybe by Blondie, if they count, or the Boomtown Rats, if they count. Mm. I'm saying they do, don't at me. <laughs> um, but um, the thing is about punk is that at the age of 11... Um, you know, because uh, it's you know you, you you said they were kind of the band for latecomers to punk. Um, I wouldn't have understood the original kind of political agenda to punk. No, uh, mm. any of that. What I would have enjoyed about Sham Sixty Nine about this song and this performance um, is a band being unruly. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Sham, Sham 69 are not very ruly, mm. uh, <laughs> nor, nor are they uh, couth or shevelled. And, uh, and uh, all of that would have appealed to me. You know, the fact that Jimmy Percy's singing in this kind of oikish working class yep. voice. Whilst waving a violin about. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, it's not subversive. What it is, is insolent, yes. which is a, a lower, yeah. it's a, it's a lower yeah, level yeah. of rebellion. Well, but yeah. it's, it's still something you cherish when you're a kid. Yeah. Someone being gleefully disrespectful of decorum. Yeah. Um, that's what I would have enjoyed, and um, yeah, you mentioned the uh, the violin. He's, so yeah, he's he's uh, waving that around without any intention of playing no. it, and then he smashes it at the end, and then uh, he's, he's waving his boots around. He's got his boots off. He's waving yes. them around, isn't yeah. he? And uh, um, the whole band just abandoned their instruments at one point, apart from the drummer Ricky Goldstein, who's playing standing up in a Davy Crockett hat. massively and out the... of time as well. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so, so that yeah, they're, they're one of those bands who are sort of like like Nirvana and the Associates and various and uh, Boomtown Rats, sort of um, subverting the whole miming thing mm. by just sort of taking the piss out. Yeah, of it. yeah. the audience is a bit bit of a sparse crowd there, but they yeah. look pretty bewildered by the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but the song itself, there's a verse that starts it's down to the hop for yes. the local girls they're not beauty queens but there are pearls and obviously we all know mm. now that that refers to the notorious walton yes. hop um, mm. which was a disco where 14 uh, year old jimmy met jonathan king yes and uh, obviously it was frequented by king's fellow sex offenders uh, the dj chris denning yes. uh, tam payton the bass city rollers manager mm. And a music journalist called uh, Rob Randall. Oh, really? And it was just down the road from the Duncroft Approved School where Jimmy Savile preyed on his victims. Oh, and um, Max Clifford was also involved in that circle. Mm. And the founder, um, Dennis Corday, yes. um, had, had a flat upstairs from the, from the hop where it all went on. Um, the euphemism apparently was washing cars, oh. right? Boys would, be, boys would be invited round to wash cars on quiet days of the week. Mm. Um, it's, it's really grim. And when, when you read the survivors' memories, you, you wonder about... The things Jimmy Percy must have seen. Yeah. Um, he was interviewed in that uh, John Ronson documentary. He went back to the hop. Yeah. Amazing documentary. I don't think it's on YouTube at the moment. There's an interview uh, in The Guardian that, that, that preceded the documentary. And, uh, yeah, uh, he said, oh, Dennis would be there. And uh, if he liked the look of you and you're a bit older, you would get a, a, a slosh of whiskey in your Coke. Yeah. And there was one time when um, he turned up with a wank mag and uh, he opened it up to Jimmy Percy and he kind of like laid his cock inside the magazine. Jesus. Do you fancy this? And Jimmy Percy just kicked the magazine away. 
Fucking hell. So, yeah. Bloody hell, yeah. So, um, there's there's a spoken bit in this record. I was trying to f- I was trying to figure it out. I was trying to figure out, is it Romani gypsy language or Polari gay it slang? It introduces the general public to the word chub, doesn't it? This well, it does. It. Yeah, right. Um, so, yeah, it's not standard English. I was kind of fascinated, so I looked into it. And, and um, Genius, the lyrics site, has it as follows. Dick-eyed Chavy, it's the Mudtown slosher, right? Yes. And I, I don't know if that's entirely correct. But, but um, as I understand it, Chavy or Chav was a traveller term long before it entered popular use yeah. it just meant um an unmarried young male and um you oh, oh no no or a child because um on that celebrity big brother with um jay goody and her mum. yeah jay goody's mum goes off on one again and says oh i can't uh, yeah i can't stand what's going on that's my chavy there she's suffering yeah yeah right so yeah it means kid well, um one of the first uses yeah. recorded in the english language was 1898 uh, there was a poet called Walter Theodore Watts Dunton um, in The Coming of Love, Rona Boswell story, and he wrote the line, mm. she loves to see her chavy looking grand. So uh, that's the right. tradition that Jimmy Percy's in there. Yeah, so um, at the time it would have completely just gone past us. We just thought he's talking yeah. some bollocks, but it turns out to yeah. be, yeah, the, the first uh, introduction of the word chav or chavy into pop culture. And also, you know, to a kid of my age, Jimmy Percy was likeable. Yeah. Simply because he, he was essentially Tucker Jenkins with cheekbones, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's fun. He's not hostile. No. He's not hostile. And he's actually, I mean, when you think about what he's going through at this period, yeah. it's, t- it's fucking tough being a figurehead as he is. Yeah. And, you know, he's slightly paranoid about the press, but what massively comes across in interviews, he does seem like a genuinely lovely guy mm. put into this position that's incredibly difficult to maintain. I wonder if they just shouldn't have, in a sense, not forgotten about their fans, but just gone purely for just mainstream success and stopped giving a fuck about punk rock, in a sense. Mm. I mean, the album that this comes from, the Gary Bushell review that I mentioned, it starts off, can't wait to hear this because I'm somebody who properly understands this music. And it ends up with him slagging it completely because yes. he feels he feels that Sham 69 have lost touch with the working class roots that they used to have lost mm. touch with their initial fans I also suspect with Bushel even if he might have been a vowed socialist at that time that he was probably had a bit more in common with the skinheads than he did with Sham 69's mm. majority fan base but yeah. he's in a really difficult position at, the, at this time Jimmy Percy it's yeah. easy to forget just how big they were just how massive yeah. they were and what a figurehead he was for so many kids who like I said missed out on the pistols to a certain extent but wanted that I think Simon's spot on in saying that this is unruly music and that's all yeah. that matters the, yes. the, 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 the unruliness the waywardness of the performance and everything that's all that matters it's kicking yeah. off isn't it yeah and there is a distinct end of term feel yeah yeah yeah, yeah. performance isn't it I mean they might as well have got their board games out as well and <laughs> played ricochet races and stuff like that I mean they are clearly fucking about and uh, yeah. you can just see the relief on them you know as I've said before Sham 69 loved doing television performances because there was absolutely no chance of dickheads ruining their fucking act yeah, 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 and um, I, th- I think this is where I think the end of term comparison really works because this is where trendy teacher Peter Powell comes in again, doesn't he? At the end, <laughs> he's sort of encouraging it. He goes, "What a way to go, nuts!" No, no, no. <laughs> so the following week, Hersham boy soared sixteen places to number seven, eventually getting to number six, the highest position for any Sham single. 
However, the follow-up, You're a Better Man Than I, took four weeks to get to number 49 in November of this year, and the collaboration with Cook and Jones fell through when neither party could get out of their contracts, so it was decided to keep the band together. Have you heard any of the Sham Pistols demos? I've not bothered, I've not bothered. Do you know what, though? This this sheds an intriguing light on something I read when I was sort of uh, reading up uh, on... You know, for this episode, uh, apparently there was an altercation at an airport between mm. John Lydon and Jimmy Percy. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, about fifteen years ago, uh, and oh, uh, right. I think uh, Jimmy Percy went up to sort of offer his hand to Rotten, and Rotten just sort of kicked out at him, and there was a scuffle, and the, I think they both got detained or something. Oh man! So <laughs> I, I wonder if it's kind of like very much belated afters from the whole Sham Pistols mm. affair. Jimmy at the time was slagging off people like in the interviews he was slagging off people like Billy Idol and he was slagging off people like Johnny Rotten quite a lot and he, yeah. and he was just getting paranoid about the amount of attention he's getting there's a quote from one of them where he goes uh, you know it's getting like if I took a crap on the motorway you'd get a headline in Melody Maker Jimmy Percy shits for the people Joe Strummer asked to comment he was <laughs> he was very much under the microscope at that time yeah yeah I mean God, God, can you imagine if Twitter had been going in the late right. 70s. I mean, particularly in the early 80s as well. Can you imagine what fun that would have been? Right. <laughs> but they conducted these arguments through the music press. Yes. Then, to a large yes. extent. Yeah. And that's why it was so brilliant reading the music press. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, of course, he was also... Uh, he was he was trying his hand with running his own label called JP Records. And he'd, he'd signed the chords. But they were supporting the undertones one night. And uh, Jimmy Percy turned up with Steve Jones and Paul Cook. And, uh, yeah, they apparently bum-rushed the stage and started lobbing amps and lighting rigs into the audience. And, uh, yeah, the band parted company with him soon after that. Christ, right. Can't yes, imagine Christ. why. <laughs> I think the last person Jimmy Percy needed to knock around with at this time would have been uh, would have been Steve Jones. I love Steve Jones, though. Yes. He's the yes. best sex pistol. But yeah, not very much of a stabilising influence. No, I'd, I'd, I'd hazard a guess. Yeah. <laughs> In the last week of September, Jimmy Percy will take over Mike Reed's 8pm slot for a week on Radio 1 until giving up the chair to another person on this episode of Top of the Pops. And at Christmas, he will present an ITV kids show about the 10 biggest singles of all time. But after Sham's next single, Tell the Children, only got to number 45 in April of 1980, and the LP The Game got a 1 out of 10 review in Smash Hits and flopped in June, they split up soon after. But before we move away from Sham 69, if you don't mind, I'd like to read the poem that Jimmy Percy wrote for the NME in this week's issue about that final gig. Wow. My manager said... It's going to be fantastic. They're crying out for you. The stage was set for the final fling. But out in the audience, they didn't realise what was happening. (laughs) The curtain lifted my eyes, saw their faces and they saw mine. They knew and I knew that it was the very last time Sham 69 would fall into line. (laughs) The bouncers looked like sheep that could hear a wolf a calling. The audience looked like the boy that cried wolf and no one was listening. And I, me, the band and all were only there to play rock and roll. At Glasgow the fantasy was seen for real. Sham could play and I could feel. At London it was also cold. The place, the record company pound note spiel. The kids 
fighting, singing, not giving a fuck. What's wrong, Jimmy Percy? Tell us the truth. Did the nightmare hurt you? Or did your dream come true? That's when you become Joe Public. They tell you, sorry, son. That's us, not you. Wow. Walter Theodore Watts Dunton, eat your heart out. Persian boys, highest new entry at 23, Sham 69. This is the Olympic Runner. looks on at the denouement of the previous performance and references the presumed demise of Sham 69 by exclaiming, What a way to go! Nuts! <laughs> Before immediately throwing us in the direction of the bitch by the Olympic runners. Formed in London in 1973, the Olympic runners were put together by Mike Vernon, the founder of the Blues Horizon record label, who also produced a swathe of British blues LPs, including Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton, as well as producing David Bowie in 10 years after, for an LP by the blues guitarist Jimmy Hawkins, which was recorded at Olympic Studios, hence the name. After the LP was finished, the group decided to stay together and enjoyed moderate success through the mid-70s on the US R&B charts, as well as putting out the do-what pastiche 18 with a bullet fronted by their keyboard player Pete Wingfield, which got to number 7 in July of 1975. But they'd have to wait until 1978 and the disco boom before they sprayed their musk on our charts, when Whatever It Takes got to number 61 in May of that year. This is a follow-up to Sir Dancelot, which got to number 35 in February of this year. It's been written by Don Black, who wrote the lyrics for Thunderball, Diamonds Are Forever and The Man With A Golden Gun, and Bidu, the man behind Cole Douglas and Tina Charles. It's the title song of the Joan Collins film of the same name, which is out next month, and it's up 29 places this week from number 66 to number 37. Now, shall, shall we talk about the film first? Because sure. the the bitch soundtrack is an absolute monument to Briscoe. It's got uh, <laughs> "Haven't Stopped Dancing Yet" by Gonzalez. Can you feel the force by the real thing? The love of my life by the Doolies. You make me feel like dancing by the old sailor and the Lone Ranger by Quantum Jump. Good stuff. Mm. Gonzalez were essentially just a sort of reshuffled version of Olympic Runners because mm. George Chandler the lead singer Olympic Runners was in Gonzales. Um, right. So uh, Haven't Stopped Dancing Yet was a hit earlier in 79. So it's it's a bit of a sort of sham sort of front, isn't it, for the same mm. revolving team of session musos. Mm. 
But it's also got um, Herbie Hancock's I Thought It Was You in it, which is oh, a fucking yes, tune. Yeah. Yes, there's some decent tracks on it. You, Neil, you've seen the film, haven't you? I have. Uh, well, <laughs> you know how I... I mean, because it's a sequel to The Stud. Um, yes. I'm, not, I'm certainly not holding The Stud up as some sort of cinematic masterwork, but you know how <laughs> a sequel can feel kind of rushed and squalid in comparison to its form? Mm. I'm thinking like... You know, Robocop 2, say, or Grease 2, or even Speed 2, or something like that. The bitch mm. managed to follow up an already squalid film with mm. an even more squalid yes. follow-up. I mean, for me, the Jackie Collins novel that really needed filming was probably Lucky. I would have mm. done that with Morgan Fairchild in it. It would have been fucking awesome. But the <laughs> bitch, even in my memories of it, it's as if I'm coming to it through a kind of the same kind of quaalude haze that the cast were in. Everyone, yeah. I mean, they started filming it basically as soon as the stud hit yes. big. They started filming it. They didn't bother with the script or any of that malarkey. They just they no. just started filming it. And the performances, I mean, everyone knows, everyone involved knows it's a cash-in on the stud. So that yes. there's no gusto to it. There's no script. The performances are pretty much all awful, including Ian Hendry. And, and mm. there's some plot going on about the mafia that never really, never really makes sense. But the no. sex scenes, oh my God. They're some of the most... <laughs> unpleasant sex scenes and I don't mean in, a, in an explicit way mm. they're just uh, the pool orgy which is kind of the most famous yes. scene of the film is, is so revolting yeah, you ha- Jacko and David Hunter's wife yeah oh god uh, you, you sort of half wish I don't know something akin to that scene in Sh- Caddyshack would happen I would have thrown <laughs> in a, a lion bar just to get them out of the fucking water it's just <laughs> it's just gross and, and the whole film is like that. It gives you this kind of shivas regal headache watching it. Yeah. It's grimy. It, it's grimy in a really totally unpleasant way. And there are these endless, queasy kind of disco passages mm. um, that basically give you a headache watching them. Um, of which, yeah, the, the, this uh, song, The Bitch, um, is one of them. Yeah. Um, but the soundtrack, yeah, I mean, the soundtrack has its moments, especially for that Herbie Hancock tune. And by the by, whilst we're talking about that Herbie Hancock tune, mm. if you're ever reading music critics and they say that some jazz funk album is a poor attempt at disco, mm. that's the album you want. That's the album to go for. Never mind the rest of jazz funk. Go for the stuff that is slightly poor attempts at disco because yeah. you get great stuff like that Herbie Hancock tune. Of course, uh, Cherry Gillespie is uh, in the trailer for The Bitch and in the film. She's just one and of the, the disco film. dancers, though. She doesn't, right, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She doesn't have it off with Jacko or anyone like that. Thank God. The, well, this <laughs> this is the time when Joan Collins stops trying to sort of pretend to be young in a sense mm. and admits she's in that milfy kind of territory. Yeah. But in, in, in terms of the best Joan Collins film from the seventies, it's not a patch on Empire of the Ants or I or <laughs> I don't or I don't want to be born, which is which is which is also great. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's more tilth than milf, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about the song also, the singer's got... Um, who wrote the lyrics again? You mentioned... Oh, yeah, Don Black. Don Black. She's a wicked witch. Um, mm. I wish I could just ditch the bitch. Um, it, it, yeah. it's, <laughs> the singer's got a good voice. She gave me a stitch. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's <laughs> rinsing that itch rhyme to, to its to its nth degree. <laughs> yeah, then I got a groinal itch. <laughs> the possibilities were endless. But, I mean, you, you can tell... The thing is with the performance, the singer's got a good voice, but you can tell he thinks yes. the song is a bit daft. And there's a sort of yes. a, there's a sort of apologetic grin on him every time he gets to the line, yes. uh, end of a yeah. line. But the key bit, obviously, of the performance is when the female backing singer 
Yes. Who, who, yes. who keeps getting the camera going to her on the bitch line, which I think is a bit mean. Yes. But she's clearly forgetting the words. But she then does a bit during the instrumental. Yes. Where she sort of goes <laughs> she, around. She does a bitch. She does a bitch in the instrumental, absolutely. But she goes around sort of listlessly teasing the band. The bassist in the bassist in particular doing a really unpleasant I've just pulled face. It's just not right. If if it's like a dancer from like Legs and Co doing that, that's fine. Mm. But it's not right if it's a band member. I mean imagine if in I don't know, if Fleetwood Mac were playing on top of the pots and Mick Fleetwood had like gone and twerked in front of Stevie Nicks or something. It's just not right. <laughs> so it, I mean, it's always a painfully embarrassing thing when that happens. But she's a band yeah. member. That that's that's just not right at all. It's my favourite bit of the um, performance. Well, I mean, as, as Sarah said in the last episode, she is some bird, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's the equivalent of that woman who comes out and uh, gets twirled around in uh, some girls by racer. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. But yeah. but she's been there from the beginning. She's been doing backing vocals ostensibly. So it's very yeah, straight. But... You, you don't get turned on by fellow band members like that. and That shouldn't occur. Yeah, but you, you can't hear her voice in the backing vocals. No, no, she's, no. She's, there, she's look, just stand. I mean... Yeah, you know, obviously she she she's got to stand there, and it's like, oh well, we haven't got a we can, we can't get a uh, a, a, a lamppost at sh- such short notice because mm. you know this is the the, uh, the the week the bad girls are in the charts. Yeah, Donna Summer's done that already. So oh, oh look, just give her a microphone. <laughs> but I also wonder if they thought that if it was just all blokes singing this song, the bitch. Um, mm. Whether that was, I doubt they <laughs> thought that was problematic, but obviously, you know, the bitch in 1979 means a totally yes. different thing to the thing it means later on. Oh. Where you, you would never, oh, yes. you would never in 1979 call a bloke a bitch. Um, it, it means something completely unless different. Unless you were gay. Unless you were gay, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But because but, I mean, she is, she is clearly the the protagonist in song is clearly a, a 70s British bitch. Mm. You know, oh, you bitch. <laughs> so it's like, you know, are they trying to get themselves off the hook of the charge of misogyny by actually having her there? And like, Perhaps. Well, look, she is a bitch, actually. <laughs> she is actually behaving like a bitch. She isn't that, really, I mean, though, is she? She's just slinking around. Mm. Well, she's prowling around and sort of teasing them, then going off to the next one and the next yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of basically acting out the song. That's not and being I, a bitch, I, though. Well, that's kind of what well, the film's about. If she just chucked a bottle of ink over the lead singer's crotch or something. That would be being a bitch. Or if she was slagging him off. But all I'm saying is, I think that's her role. They don't care about her being a singer. She's there to basically Mm. justify the title of the song, visually. Mm. And I I love it. I think it's worth seeing it just for that 20 seconds. I think she's hilarious. (laughs) She's chewing the scenery, the way she acts. It's really quite something. Yeah, she really is. I mean, she is is a late 70s British bitch. I don't think she's an early 70s American bitch. No. And she's certainly not a, a, a mid-90s biatch. No, 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 no. no. Um, I, what, what I think of her as is a sort of precursor to the woman in the middle of uh, Bad Boys by Wham, who goes, yes. yes, boys like you are bad through and through. Yes. Still, girls like me always seem to be with you. <laughs> she's like that. That's the kind of character. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I noticed, by the way, Peter Powell, can't bring himself to say the title at first at the, mm. at the top of the yeah. Uh, performance. Yeah, he can't. Say, he just can't say the B word. He just says Olympic runners. Mm. Um, I, I on Peter Powell there. It, well, he, he says it at the end. That's the thing. He's, uh. It's like he's been like he's been psyching himself up like throughout the performance. Like, uh, can I say it? Can I say it? And eventually mm. says the bitch at the end. But um, 
I've I've not seen. I sort of have and haven't seen mm. the bitch at the same time because mm. I bought the DVD when I was running a disco club about ten years yeah, ago. Right, and uh, I wanted some sort of sleazy and disco related yeah, stuff yeah. to um, project on the big screen. Mm. So I had that, I, and I had the stud, and I had thank God it's Friday. Um, and I think Saturday Night Fever as well. I sort mm. of alternate between these. So it looked kind of amazing, mm. but I've not sat down and watched it. So you're saying I maybe shouldn't... No, I think, no I think everyone should watch The Bitch. Just like everyone yeah. should watch The Stud. They're, they are they are capsules of their time. Like, yeah, like everyone should look at their toilet paper for signs of blood. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the thing is, The Stud, I could imagine some... Well, not I don't have to imagine. It was me, for Christ's sake. I could imagine somebody <laughs> using that for masturbatory purposes... The, the the bitch. I mean, look, these were desperate times. It was either that or yes. Falcon Crest. You know what I mean? But I mean, it, 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 you know, the bitch. You'd be hard pushed to crap one off to that film. It is is so mm. depressing depressingly right. squalid and grim I mean how a film can actually be more squalid than its predecessor and not feature Oliver Tobias I don't know but it but yeah. it but it managed it it's, it's a tawdry I, tawdry thing I mean the film was immediately rushed out to video mm. uh, in the days when straight to video was actually a good thing it meant that you know you could make a lot of money for it there was an advert in the papers at the time that said treat your dad to Joan Collins for Christmas <laughs> Christ. And I also do remember there being full-size cardboard cutouts of Joan Collins in her Baskin stockings mm. and and the uh, the chauffeur's cap and the fur coat and everything. Yeah, and uh, that, that I think that was in HMV, and that fucking terrified me. I would not trust myself to walk past that. <laughs> Scared. Yeah, well, ultimately, Joan Collins is a bitch in that film in 1979 because she yes. has sex with who she wants to have sex with, and that yes. that's, that's you know that makes her a bitch in 1979. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I say that the woman in this performance is more of a vamp than a bitch. Perhaps mm. that'd be yes, something like yeah, that. Yeah, totally. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I like how the lead singer guy, uh, who is George Chandler, not to be confused with Gene Chandler, mm. um, he's taken the band name really literally, isn't he? He's, he's in his trackies. Well, yeah. here we go. He may be the first non-paedophile to appear on Top of the Pops in a tracksuit. <laughs> Blimey. You know, this is the, this is the yeah. era when tracksuits started to appear uh, amongst uh, amongst the youths. Yeah, he's way ahead of, like, Break Machine or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. but, but it's yeah. not... It's not the sort of tracksuit you'd be allowed to wear on the school playground. I mean, number one, it's white, and number two, it looks pretty expensive. It's 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 the sort of tracksuit that you see Engelbert Humperdinck wearing <laughs> in the morning when he's yeah. sat at his breakfast bar with some uh, freshly squeezed orange juice. <laughs> and I, I bet the legs of that tracksuit haven't got stirrups in them either. No, they'll be the kind of flared, yeah. one, maybe like a little zip up the side. Yeah, yeah, because I, I had a forest tracksuit at the time um, from the club shop as a birthday present and uh, all of my mates wanted to borrow it when we were playing football because it made them look more like footballers and uh, you know already at the age of 11 some of my compatriots were starting to sweat and uh, I bring the tracksuit home and it absolutely reeked of BO my mum banned me from wearing it to school <laughs> well you couldn't play football really in those particularly the tracksuits with the flared legs because no. you'd be going to kick the ball and just the flappy bit would get yeah. caught in your other leg and yeah. it would just all go wrong I mean one thing I used to love to do with the tracksuit with the bottoms because of the stirrups I found you, they were so stretchy that I could pull the bottoms of the tracksuit right up until I got the waistband around my neck <laughs> and then I'd be automatically hunched over but I would do that and just run and scream at girls who were you know clustered around the edge of the playground and I'd just go ah and scatter them and it was very satisfying 
And it was very ball-splitty as well. Is, is that still your preferred pulling technique, Al? Yeah. yeah, I already knew how to impress the ladies at that age. So, yeah, he's, he's taken the band name very literally um, as an Olympic runner, but he reminds me of mm. Cutty from The Wire, if that means anything to you. Like right, wearing that yeah. kind of retro tracky. Um, thing is, he right, so this guy, George Chandler, as I said, he's previously in Gonzales, uh, and he uh, also did some pretty decent solo stuff. And you mentioned Pete Winfield was in there on keyboards. I loved 18 with a Bullet. That's a brilliant single. Mm. And Mike Vernon, you mentioned all the stuff he produced, all that. He was also a member of Rocky Sharp and the Replays, incredibly. Um, yes. So they're all kind of well-travelled mm. journeymen of pop, aren't they? And yes. um, I looked at their chart positions, Olympic runners. Um, they all seem to get somewhere between 70 and 100 in the Billboard charts, and, yes. uh, and no higher than 35 in, in the UK charts. Uh, one of them had the amazing title Sprouting Out. I really want to hear that one. After that, <laughs> um, so they are very much also round. It sounds like my bollocks after I pulled the tracks <laughs> So if you pardon the pun, they're very much also rounds, and it, it, it's it's all right, yeah. it's all right. This nothing more, um, and and uh, but we we cut from it at the end to Powell um, trying to look as if he's been dancing, but it's yeah. so obviously fake. Yeah, yes. he's like he's like swinging his arms and clicking his fingers, but it's as if yeah. it's as if he's been told to on a count of three, like three, two, one, click your fingers, you know, and then he does. Yes. And and this time he does he does say the b word like he has been psyching himself. <laughs> yeah. I think he'd be saying that a bit more often after his wedding. Ooh. We still haven't determined whether he uh, arranged that uh, exploding motorcycle accident. <laughs> the jury's still out. Well, you know, you said that tracksuit stank a bo. Yes, I've been wondering of late. When did deodorant become part of your life? Oh, for me, it would have been about thirteen, fourteen. Well, but I mean, when we look back at these clips. Um, do most of the people stink, do you think? <laughs> I just wonder about the widespreadness of deodorant in, in this era. Oh, no, it was all over the place, mate. Oh, well, oh right, OK. Mom, okay. right, God, roll-on deodorant. Yeah, all that kind of shit. Yeah, people were, okay, okay. People were aware that the pits reeked at this okay. time and okay, wanted to okay. do something about it. I don't think people cared as much as they do now. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. The thing. Uh, maybe, right. maybe. I think I was a little bit older, maybe about 16, 17, before I started doing that. mm, mm. Yeah, I think actually, I think talcum powder might have come first. Yes, not 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 because I bought it, but because somebody would have it given it there. to me. Yeah, like as in, in part of maybe like a a Christmas gift set with some Old Spice or something mm. like that. You yeah. know, which is a really weird thing to give to a essentially a child. But there we go. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I suspect that a lot of my compatriots were using deodorant long before they needed to. Right, I, I put that alongside shaving as well. <laughs> So the following week, the bitch dropped back one place to number 38. It would be the final hurrah for the Olympic runners, who split up soon after when Mike Vernon joined Rocky Sharp and the replays and changed his name to Eric Rondo. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. You imagine the meeting for that. Oh, yeah, lads, uh, disco's gone as far as it can go. I've, I'm moving on to the future. Yeah. I'm joining Rocky Sharp and the replays. <laughs> and keyboardist Pete Wingfield produced Searching for the Young Soul Rebels by Dex's Midnight Runners. Yes. Before going on to produce To Be or Not To Be for Mel Brooks, tribute right on for the Pasadenas and that old devil called Love for Alison Moyer. And, and unbelievably, in my research, first thing I did, I just wondered how many gangster rappers sampled this song mm-hmm. none of the fuckers not sampled anywhere is it no apparently it's, not according to who sampled there are no samples for the bitch by olympic runners it's, it's waiting just... to be used yeah yeah 
That's the Olympic Runners uh, featuring Pete Wingfield, of course, and The Bitch. This is The Sound of Summer. digitised curtain falls upon the Olympic runners, we cut back to Powell, who is pretending to have danced all the way through it. He then points at the stage and says, This is the sound of summer. It's If I Had You by the Corgis. Formed in 1978 from the asses of Stackridge, an early 70s folk rock band whose main claims to fame were opening for Elton John at Wembley Stadium in 1975 and that their fans had lobbed turnips at the jam in an early career support slot, (laughs) the Corgis were immediately picked up by Nick and Tim Heath, the sons of 1940s band leader Ted Heath, and when they didn't get signed to a label, they formed their own Rialto Records. Their debut single, Young and Russian, failed to chart, but this single, the follow-up, was played to death by Tony Blackburn, began a slow pull up the lower reaches of the charts, finally made it into the top 43 weeks ago, and it's up this week from number 20 to number 13, and this is its second appearance on Top of the Pops. Oh, Tony Blackburn just... Turns the fucking world of pop once again, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, he's the Geppetto pulling the strings at this time, <laughs> very much so. So, yes, we usually ask a question round about this time, don't we, Simon? Go on. James Warren, the lead singer, how old is he? Fucking hell, right. So they've been around since the sort of late... Oh, I thought you were going to find this out. I don't know. <laughs> All right, OK. See, I believe he's 30. At this point... Um, I wasn't so much fixated on his age. I mean, obviously, they've been around a while, having been in Stackridge before this. Mm. My question was, has there ever been a weedier-looking singer in, oh, God, in yeah. Top of the Pops history than James Warren? Yeah. Possibly yes. yeah, possibly Randy Van Warmer, but uh, other than that, mm. it's, yeah, he'd be hard-pressed to find a weedier-looking man. He's incredible, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I, I love the Corgis. I'm not having a go. I, um, mm. No. They're, they're, they're an odd band. By the way, I love that story you just told about throwing turnips because, you know, mm. as I understand it, I think they're most like a West Country, Bristol area kind of band. Exactly. That's yes. such a perfect thing, throwing turnips mm. at the jam. That is amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, but they're an odd band because their sound and their, their logo and their suits, and they've got that kind of punky K, the spiky K with which they spelt their name and the logo, mm. and the artwork. Uh, all of that was loosely kind of new wave. It sort of seemed to be mm. positioning themselves in a new wave. But they yeah. were relatively old fellas. Like new music. Yeah, yeah. But, but they were obviously old fellas hitching a ride. They, you know, they, they were, mm. I'm not saying chances, but they, they were second chances. It was like, well, we've, we've, tr- yes. we've done this uh, uh, sort of folk rock thing, but let's, let's try, try the new wave. Um, I actually did a bit of a deep dive into um, recently, not the album that this is off, but the following one, uh, which uh, is called Dumb Waiters. And uh, yeah. I, because I, I quite often sort of pick things up on vinyl for a quid that I've often wondered, is that any yes. good? And mm-hmm. uh, so I played it and um, 
it's it's fascinating really because it's sort of not how you expect like for a start there's loads of stuff about eco-destruction and so on the the first words there's this opening track called silent running it goes futuristic landscape futuristic skies no birds or vegetation Earth remains despised. Mm. Some, it's like someone off the Holy Bible by the Manic Street Preachers. Right. It's, it's like it's not not what you expect from the mellow. If I had you, hitmakers. Um, there, mm. There's some quite nice sort of synthy textures on there. So they're obviously adopting synths. But you can tell it's one of those records. It's when when people who've internalised prog um, decide that that they want to go at being Elvis Costello. So you, you've got both, yes. both, both these things going on. So on that record, when the big ballad drops, everybody's got to learn some type, which is amazing, obviously. Yeah. Um, no argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On that. But then yeah, at the yeah. end of side two, there's all some mad shit. There's this instrumental track called Rover's Return, which is this sort of weird fairground music and, and a sample of a barking dog all over. Maybe this is why uh, Tony Blackburn <laughs> liked it, because of Arnold. You know, it, sounds like, <laughs> yes. it sounds like Arnold let off the leash and gone berserk. Um, and yeah, I guess Corgis. I see what they've done there, Corgis and all that. But um, mm. I, I, I remember um, I um, let slip at school that I liked the Corgis. And um, someone, and some people were sort of laughing at me for it. Um, and uh, I, I remember telling my dad, and, and he, he sort of like almost sort of took me to one side and said, look, right, he gave me a bit of a talk, <laughs> saying like, if, if people are going to be musical bigots, as he put it, that they're only mm. going to lose in the end. And that really stuck with me. And, yeah. um, and I, 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 I adore this song. It's, um, it's almost literally irresistible in that it's got this kind of um, melodic logic to it that I, I often talk about with other things that... Almost from from the first chord change, you know exactly where it's going to go, but it goes there mm. with such panache and t- delivers it beautifully. Um, Powell mm. going, "This is the sound of summer." I don't know about that. <laughs> it's it's no, a no, kind, of, yeah, kind yeah. of quite quite a heartbreaking record. Um, yeah, it's not a, it's not a summer I'd want to have. No, but it's got beautiful <laughs> harmonies, beautiful slide guitar. I thought it was pedal steel at first, but it's slide guitar on there, and um, mm. uh, also I, I remember being at Melody Maker in in the nineties when. A lot of bands, like like Teenage Fan Club, for example, um, were always getting compared to previous bubblegum pop or pop rock bands. And it was always people like the Raspberries and Big Star who never really had hits in this country yeah. because that, that was the cool, the obscure, cool ones. That was a cool, yeah. obscure thing to compare to. But I'm thinking, fucking hell, man, no, the Corgis. The, if, I had, if you imagine a band like Teenage Fan Club doing a cover of If I Had You by the Corgis, it would be immense, um, although mm. still not as good as the original. Um, I, no. I put it in the same bracket as something like Photograph by Ringo Starr, which, which I also mm. love as just kind of this sweeping, beautiful, melodic, uh, uh, irresistible pop rock record. So I mean I've yeah I've I've probably wanged on enough there about about the corgis the sort of improbable love I have for them I believe they've got back together and they're touring yes. at the moment I I'm gutted I missed they they played um, the rope tackle in Shoreham which is not far from me um, earlier this mm. year and I didn't even know about it so it's too late so I hope I do get to oh. catch them sometime but enough from me yeah. on you go Neil <laughs> well no the fact that you like the, the fact that you love this song uh, uh, it, it sort of suggests to me I need to listen to it some more because I was kind of slightly immune to its charms I, uh, it, it's the the kickoff that's, that references kind of Ramaninoff's uh, variations on a theme by Paganini and the Beatlesy ah. kind of slide guitar. They, they, I think what you said about them being proggers who have then uh, moved on. I think absolutely they've got that little classical touch to them. Obviously, everybody's got to learn. Sometimes there's a different kettle of fish entirely. In a sense, uh, who could not love that fucking record? That's yeah. amazing in all its different incarnations. You've obviously played that at late night mini cub FM, haven't you? Son? We Come certainly on, have nailed on. Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. It's just a beautiful, beautiful song. That uh, this is not that. 
Um, no. I need to perhaps hear it a few more times and really let it get to me. But I think what I was put off by was precise. And, and you know, I, I'd ordinarily like weedy singers, but this guy looks yeah. so fucking weedy. <laughs> I want to bully him. He looks so fucking weedy. <laughs> And, and and so you can also tell to a certain extent that after the, you know, Statridge did play a lot live. They made a decision, didn't they, the Corkies, to not play live much or not play yes. at all, in fact. And yes. you can sort of tell that. It's a similar decision that I think Steely Dan took in about 76, just to focus on being in the studio. You can tell mm. they're not a live band. You can sort of tell that in the somewhat... Um, moribund performance, I guess. Because the performance ruins the song, doesn't it? He yeah, because... so fucking pained while he's singing. He's <laughs> like he's snarling. That's it. And I think it's... It's spoils... like, oh, this is what you've got to do to get on top of the pops now. You've got to snarl at the at the camera. I think it... it yeah, it spoils... And his teeth, yeah, when he's singing his teeth. You know, um, you know the Charlie Says... Um, adverts, yeah, yeah. public information films. You know the one where um, you know I got an apple and Charlie got something he likes, and, and Charlie just fucking demolishes that fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He sings like Charlie eating that <laughs> fish, just with his fangs, and he's just chomping away. <laughs> That's the thing. I, I, I was kind of rendered oblivious to the quality of the song because he didn't annoy me as such, but he was so pitiable. That yeah. I find I, I, anything he's moaning about in the song, I just sort of thought, yeah, you fucking deserve it, mate. I mean, he's got a wine-coloured shirt on and a golden brown pattern tie, and the tie's worn Trump style, isn't it? It's really long, oh, yeah. and it, and it's so long that someone or him has threaded it between the strings of his bass. Maybe you did that, Neil, to bully him. <laughs> no, but the thing we have to bear in mind is is that song quality. It's it's an odd thing. It's like if say. I don't know, a member of One Direction came back with a solo single and it was this song and nobody had ever heard mm. it before, they'd be being hailed as the new Bowie right now. You know, it's yes. probably a quality good song, but I'm slightly put off by the performance. Mm. But with yeah. with regards to the Corgis, I haven't got past um, Everybody's Gotta Learn Sometimes because why would I? I love that song. Even, yeah. in, even in its yeah. Baby D incarnation, I love that song. I love the melody of mm. it and the feel of it. So yeah. I obviously need to explore further. This one didn't quite float my boat, but perhaps I need to revisit it, it as a listening experience rather than as a top of the pops experience. Yeah, but this is another effect of punk, isn't it? The idea that, you know, if you're in a band, you can look like whatever and mm. it, it doesn't matter as much. doesn't matter as much now in 1979 as it, as it would have done in 1976 or in 1982. Yeah, but so. I wouldn't have associated their look with punk at all. I would have associated no. it with those older no, but musicians. The, but the knock-on effect throughout all of yeah. the music. Now, yeah. it, was, it was more like a, a new wave vibe with them. You've, you felt that they were yeah. somehow loosely connected to things like Costello and Nick Lowe and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Maybe that mm. kind of end of things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but they have got it yeah. wrong. You mentioned his tie like that. Clearly, what he needed to do was turn his tie round and have the skinny little bit coming down and tuck the fat <laughs> yes. bit inside. That's what he meant. Yeah, to yeah. Do. yeah. His look yeah. and his snarling. Um, it just makes him look like Curly Watts having a really angry wang, doesn't it? <laughs> and it also makes you wonder what the world would change to if he had her. And you've got to say, probably not for the better, really. So stay away from him, Doug. But. I've seen the video for everyone who's got to learn sometime. He looks miles better. Uh-huh. And uh, I've seen a recent photo of him and he looks even better still. Oh, he's, he's one of these people who j- just looks better the older they get. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, don't be afraid to go and see him, Simon. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Fans like the Corgis, they are a proto-white pyjama band, aren't they? Ooh, that's a good You shout. can imagine them yeah. existing very well in the mid-80s, I've, I feel. Absolutely, alongside China Crisis and Fiction Factory and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. 
So the following week, If I Had You dropped three places to number 16. The follow-up, a re-release of Young and Russian, failed to chart, but they roared back the following year when Everybody's Gotta Learn Sometime got to number five for two weeks in late June, early July. However, after taking a cue from the Buggles and refusing to tour their new album, it really did for them, and their next single, If It's Alright With You, Baby, stalled at number 56. And after not even a Trevor Horn remix of the single Don't Look Back failed to chart, they split up for the first time in When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.